0: Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him.
1: Good morning. We're going to start with uh, Exodus chapter 20. Then God spoke all these words. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to to the Lord your God. You must not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock, or the resident alien who is within your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything in them in six days. He rested on the seventh day, therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. We're over at uh, Matthew chapter 11. Verse 28, come to me all of you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Terry.
0: All right. I know some of you are like, what is that dude doing up there? Um, And I don't disagree with you. Uh, Those of you who know me best. Uh, But I will say that uh, I don't believe that there's any purebreds. Would you agree? We're all just trying to figure it out, doing the best we can. Can you give me that much at least? And the other thing I'm going to tell you is I'm going to poke you today. Um, And I don't want you to be too sore. But all I can say is eat the chicken and spit out the feathers, okay? (laughs) Okay. Um, I just want to make sure that we are um, just prepared for what God might have to say for us today. So we've been in this series on the Sabbath, right? And it's really funny to do a whole series on it because the Sabbath for us Western American Christians just doesn't, doesn't mean sort of the same thing. But well, what's funny is, is I, it's, it's interesting that we don't. Now, our general tradition for Sabbath is going to church on Sunday, but it's not really other than going to church. For most of us, it isn't really that much different than other days of the week. Would you agree? And so um, let's go back to where it began, right? So this is the Ten Commandments, right? Exodus chapter 20. This is the Ten Commandments. And this is where it first started um, is in those Ten Commandments. And so can you remember what the Ten Commandments are, right? Most of us can get don't murder, steal, and lie. Okay, those, those are easy. We got those. All right. Then there's the don't want what the guy next to you has. All right, that's interesting because that's on the inside. How could you, how would you know, you know? Um, then there's honor your mom and dad. Some of you are saying, I see the bubble over your head. is like, well, you haven't met my parents. Okay, okay, okay. And then there's the ones about God, right? Don't put anything else before me. Don't make any idols. And don't swear with God's name, right? All right, so those are those. And then there's this one, just inserted in the middle of this, that makes no sense at all. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work. Neither you nor your son or daughter nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day, and therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so, it's odd, right? It doesn't seem to fit. See, the concept of the Sabbath, according to those verses and tradition, is that it centers around two ideas. The idea of remembrance and rest. Right? And so the traditional Christian theology really ideas, identifies with this idea of uh, remembrance. Remember that there was a God. Remember that he created the world in six days. And then the Jewish tradition also attaches the um, the exodus um, out of Egypt as a part of that remembrance as well. Right? And so what's the closest thing that we have now? Like it, it's just such a concept that's so foreign to us. So we can look at like holidays and vacations. Right? And Vacations are, are they restful? <laughs> have, have any of you taken your children to Disney World? Is that restful at all? Is any part of like going on vacation and then travel and that, is that really restful? Now there are certain times where you can go sit on a beach and do nothing and someone will bring you food and you only have to get up to go to the bathroom. Awesome, right? But most of the time when we do vacations, it's not, right? So then maybe vacations is, what about, what about like kind of the American holiday? We, we observe, right? We remember. But is it restful? Every holiday, you know, like we just celebrated a holiday, right? We remember and observe our independence from Mexico. Is that... <laughs> just a, that was a joke. So, but we remember, but do we really observe? How, how much of that was a relaxing day for you? All the planning and prepping. You see, what we do in our houses, we have big Thanksgivings. It is a big deal. It's usually a five or six day affair. Everybody's there. I mean, it is weeks and weeks of, of cleaning and shopping and prepping and cooking and cleaning up. Um, and, and our Thanksgiving meal is a big deal, right? We have this huge thing. And, and I remember the first time... When we were young married, and uh, I think we had Kenya, we had everybody at our house. It was the first time we did that. And man, I was going to do the turkey. And I I was going to smoke this turkey. I got up at like 3.30 in the morning. Mindy was short on the heels. We were cooking and prepping and doing stuff. I mean, the oven only allows so much food, so you had to keep trading it out. And there was a schedule. And I mean, we were doing everything. And I remember at 5 o'clock, we all sat down. And it was like Norman Rockwell. It was beautiful. This turkey came out, we set it down and everything, and we started eating and we enjoyed it and it was amazing. And we forced everybody to have seconds and at the point when everybody was absolutely done, the meal was over. I looked up at the clock and it was 520. All that work for 20 minutes, right? So even the idea of American holiday doesn't seem to really work with this idea of Sabbath, right? So then maybe we look at the tr- kind of traditional historical Jewish practice of Sabbath, and they, and they call it the Shabbat, right? And, and so most of the time when we do look at that as Christians, we look at the list of things they can't do, right? And there's technically 39 things that you can't do, and Mindy gave a big list of those things if you were here last week. And it was really funny because when she said, one of the things she said was tearing, and it got me to thinking, like, you can't tear, What do you do with toilet paper? (laughs) I actually had to look that up. Um, So you, and I found out you actually tear it off the day before, right? So super smart. But we look, we look at, we, from the outside looking in, and we, we don't sort of get it, um, and, and it's more about what they're not allowed to do than anything else, and that's why it doesn't seem appealing. But I was doing some reading, and no, one, I want to be very respectful because there are so many different observances and traditions for um, uh, the Shabbat in the Jewish culture and so many different ways of expressing that. But I, I came across this one I kind of want to read to you, and it just sounds really awesome, right? The Shabbat is like all Jewish days. It begins at sunset. And at about 2 or 3 p.m. on a Friday afternoon, observant Jews leave the office and begin Shabbat uh, preparations. The mood is much like preparing for the arrival of a special or beloved guest. The house is clean, the family bathes. they dress up. The best dishes and the tableware are set on the table, and a festive meal is prepared. In addition, anything that cannot be done on that day must be done in advance. So lights and appliances must be set. Timers have to be placed on things if that's what your house does. The light bulb in the refrigerator must be removed or at least unscrewed so that when you open the door, it doesn't turn on. Um, There's all those kind of things, and uh, there's preparations for the the meals. Um, On Shabbat, the candles are lit and a blessing is recited no later than 18 minutes before sunset. The ritual is performed by the woman of the house and officially marks the beginning of Shabbat. There's two candles that are lit, representing two commandments, one to remember and the other to observe. The family then attends a brief evening service, and after services, the family comes home for a festive, leisurely dinner. Before dinner, the man of the house recites a prayer over the wine, sanctifying Shabbat. The usual prayer for eating bread is recited over two loaves of sweet, eggy bread shaped in a braid. The family eats dinner together, and although there's no specific requirement, meals are generally stewed or slow cooked because of the prohibition against cooking during Shabbat, right? And after a dinner, a special prayer for the meal is is sung, and by the time all this is complete, it might be 9 p.m. or later, and then the family has an hour or two to sit and talk and study the Torah and go to sleep, and the next morning, the Shabbat services begin around 9 a.m. They continue to about noon, and after services, the family says the prayer, and they have this leisurely festive meal They study the Torah for a while, they take an afternoon walk, we play checkers, engage in leisure activities. A short afternoon nap is not uncommon, and there's usually a traditional third meal right before Shabbat is over. Shabbat ends at nightfall when three stars are visible, and it's approximately 40 minutes after sunset. Blessings are resorted over the wine, spices, candles, and a blessing is recited regarding the separation and division between the sacred and secular, between Shabbat and the working days. So as you can see, Shabbat is a very full day when properly observed, and is very relaxing. You don't really miss being able to turn on the TV, drive a car, go shopping, or all the other things. Isn't that amazing? That's the first time I actually heard and saw that. That sounds amazing. I read one thing that says that we celebrate in luxury on that day without actually doing the work on that day. I thought that was pretty amazing. So in a way, it actually is very similar to our holidays Where we work twice as hard on one day to rest on another day. Okay, but rest doesn't seem to be a practice that we are all familiar with. And in our our reading, when Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest in your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light." When we hear this, we hear something that sounds so great, don't we? We kind of connect with it. And we use these verses to comfort others. We write poems about it. How many of you guys are familiar with footprints in the sand? Everybody of a certain generation understands that, and everybody else is completely clueless. Here's the cliff notes. Guy's walking on a beach. His life is flashing in scenes in the sky. And every time something is good, he notices two footprints, uh, two footprints of sands together. And every time something is bad, there's only one footprint. And he asks God, why is there only one when the bad stuff happens? And at the end of the poem, it says something to the effect of, well, that was when I carried you. And, and we love that, right? Um, it comforts us. We use that verse to evangelize. Come to Jesus and lay your burdens down on him. And if all of that is true... And if you call yourself a Christian, well, then when was the last time you actually felt rest? Some of us have learned to find really good rhythms, right? Quiet times and mindfulness, uh, but usually not a full day of that. We have a phrase in our family called full slack mode. What we do is we tell each other, listen, I am on full slack mode. That means don't bother me. I am just going to sit. I'm going to do nothing. We are, gonna, we are just going to waste the day away, right? But even that, as Brandon talked about several weeks ago, it's, it's just sometimes we just sit and then busy our minds with our phones and our apps and TV and television shows and binge watching the greatest, uh, latest thing, right? So then do we really rest in those periods? And then what do we, if we, if we work, what do we do with the day off? Do we really rest or do we substitute that time for experiences and activities, hobbies, or just generally catching up with the rest of life? I feel like that's what we do most of the time. And why is rest so difficult for us? And yet Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, to understand rest, we need to set some working definitions. All right. And because I'm up here, I get to make them whatever I want. I want us to think about hobbies, work and toil. Okay, hobbies, work and toil. A hobby is something that you like to do. Right. It's it's you do it for no other reason than the enjoyment of doing it. Um, Some of you like yard work. I don't understand that. That doesn't make sense to me. But some of you like that but whatever our hobbies are, right? And then work is something that you do to support yourself. It's just what you got to do to live, right? And vocation, sure, it's hard, but there's a symbiotic relationship between your work and and, and the life for most of us. And toil is what you have to do to survive. Now, make no mistake, for some, work is toil. For some, economics is toil. So don't confuse the two. But toil is different, you see. Toil is thrust upon you. It's from the outside. And burden is toil that you cannot control. You don't have control over it, and that's what makes it toil. You see, when Jesus says, come to me who are burdened, the original Greek uh, was uh, fortizo, which is to load down, or another word is to suffer, to be loaded down. And toil is a result of the curse. You see, prior to the fall of man, there was work. There was sweat, there was labor, there was things to do, right? You got to name animals and put stuff in order and all of this stuff, whatever there is to do back then, right? There was work. But then all of, a sudden cha- <clears throat> excuse me, all of a sudden, something changed and everything began to fight us, even our own bodies. And it's almost as if the ground itself begins to eat away at anything that's good in our lives, right? Genesis chapter 3 says, cursed is the ground because of you Painful toil you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So enter shame, enter grief, enter death, malady, disease, brokenness, and fear. You see, toil is dealing with loss, being trapped, hopeless, without any options, ashamed, addicted, broken, broke, and alone. And if the Sabbath is rest, then the Sabbath is the mercy of toil. Let me say that again. If the Sabbath is rest, then the Sabbath is mercy to our toil. And in that, Jesus says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says you'll find rest for your souls. What is that like? Sit with that for a second. What would it mean that your soul is actually able to rest? But as we think about it, we're not all able to find rest. It doesn't seem quite equal, does it? I mean, there's some who are in it, And others who are not. Some who find relief and seem to have it all together. And others who are barely hanging on from being swallowed up. How is it possible? Has God lifted the burdens of some and refused to lift others? If so, what's the formula? And when we hear verses in the context of our reality, there's conflict, is there not? Where there is rest, or Where is their rest, where, why is their burden not lifted? Well, Kevin, God helps those who help themselves. Okay, let's think about that. You see, I actually believe there's two types of people who use that phrase. One, the people who actually believe it's true, and that's based on the blessings and lifestyle that they enjoy. I mean, it's worked for me. What's your problem? It's kind of what it's saying. And believe me, there's nothing more American than pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps. And believe me, if you are able and just being lazy, sometimes the best thing is giving someone a kick in the pants, right? However, if one were able to help themselves, then it would just be work. Go Back to our definitions. Pulling yourself up by your bootstrap presupposes two things, that you have boots and you have hands. Remember, true toil is without options. It's being powerless to change your circumstances. And burden is toil that grinds you down into the dust. You see, I used to be a person who prided himself on being self-made. I took every opportunity I could to tell everybody about how I left home when I was 14 years old. And I'd worked two jobs. And I put myself through school. And I, and I, you know, built the family and did the whole thing. But now, every time I tell the story in that narrative... I'm kind of ashamed that I'm ignoring all the people who helped me, supported me, and bailed me out. I don't like to really tell the story anymore. And I challenge anyone who believes that they did it on their own to really sit and take an account of what was offered to you along the way. Now, the second group of folks who use statements like this are folks that are just looking for cover. People in quiet struggle that ought, dare not to disclose what's really going on. And in a high-context society, where the outside doesn't accurately reflect what's inside most of the time, it's social contract. We're all suffering in silence, and so should you. Put on the face. Don't complain. Weakness makes you a target. And that seems to be the context that we find ourselves. Have you ever heard the saying, be nice for everyone you meet? is fighting the battle of their lives. If that's true, then bootstrap theology only serves to drive folks further into isolation. And isolation is the straps that lash burden to a weary body. That's why when the pamphlet says, God has a wonderful plan for your life, some of us look around and we go, hey, something's not right here. Is it the wonderful plan to have disease? to struggle with addiction, mental health issues, suffer devastating loss, loss of relationships, fear and loneliness? Is that the wonderful plan? And if so, our schema, the way we see the world, including this social contract, influences our theology. But we're in good company. It's not just limited to us, right? Let's remember the good Samaritan. Guy was walking down the street and he was robbed. And he was beaten, and he was stripped of everything, and he was left for dead. And Jesus, in his parable, as he's telling this, says that the person was left destitute. And a priest walks up and sees him and walks on the side the other side of the street. A Levite does the same thing. And then Jesus says, the Samaritan, who really had no obligation to stop at all, he says that when he saw him, he took pity on him, and he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. He put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you have. That is a beautiful story, right? But why did the others leave him? Maybe it's out of piety, right? The, the need to be ceremonial, clean, and they were prohibited, the priests were prohibited from touching a dead person. Uh, and, and maybe it's out of a legitimate and earnest fear and devotion of the law of God but they move to the other side of the street, and the end result is leaving someone to die. Maybe it was out of a bootstrap mindset, their schema of their world, that social contract. Well, you must have done something to deserve this. You, why were you walking down that alley? Why did you have so much money on you? You should have done something different. Some people say that they were just human like all of us, and maybe they didn't stop because they were in a hurry to do something good. Or maybe it cost them something, time, money, and getting messy. I mean, apparently you have to do some sort of oil and vinegar salad dressing rub down on somebody back then. I don't understand that, but okay. Who knows, right? But it's probably for a mix of reasons. It's very complicated, like we're all complicated. But you will always find a reason not to stop if you're looking for one. And it doesn't matter if you're motivated by selfishness or piety, by principle or politics. The result is the same. You walk on the other side. Now, if we stop here and we judge the priest and Levite, and we say that I'm not like them, then we're getting on the toes of behaviorism, right? And behavior is a symptom, not a cause. Remember, Mindy juxtaposed the woman who was burdened by a physical ailment and the priests who were burdened by the law, and we found out that they really are the same people. But maybe we're not that different than the priests and the Levite. In 1973, researchers Darley and Batson performed what was called the, the famous Princeton Seminary Experiment. And they got a bunch of seminary students together, and they told, them, they told them to meet in one building, and then they were supposed to go to another building to do a task. Right? And uh, in one condition, they told everybody... You are already late. You need to get there and do this. And one, another condition was like, man, you only have a couple of minutes. And then one condition was like, hey, you got plenty of time. Just make your way over and you're fine, right? Now, on the way there, they were confronted with a person standing in a doorway that they had to go through to get to that building. And that person, we don't know what their, the, 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 the uh, people in the experiment wouldn't know what the condition was. But um, either drunk or, but he, he was slumped over. Uh, he'd cough. Uh, and he, he definitely looked like he needed some help. And so they had this idea of uh, a scale of helping. What did the seminary students do when they were going, right? And it's, and it's like a zero to five point scale. Zero, they failed to notice the victim, didn't even do it and walked right on. One, they perceived the need but didn't offer aid. Two, they stopped to help but indirectly. Like when they got there, they said, hey, there's a guy back there. Would you send somebody to go look at him? Um, some stop and ask if they needed help. Some, after stop, they insisted on taking the person inside, and then some people refused to leave the person. So that was kind of the scales that they were looking for, right? Now, this was the task that they were given. One task was just to prepare a talk in the other building about seminary jobs, vocation of seminary graduates. And in the other, they were supposed to do a talk on the, uh, the Good Samaritan, that parable. What do you think happened? Minnie goes, oh boy. <laughs> what do you think happens? See, the researchers had some hypothesis. And a couple of those hypotheses were people in a hurry would be less likely to offer aid than others. And one of the other hypotheses they wanted to show is, is thinking about helping people consciously change whether or not you actually do. What do you think the results were? The amount of hurriedness induced in the subject had a major effect of helping behavior. So let's look at the low hurry group. You got all the time in the world, just get there and do your talk. Only 63% of seminary students stopped to help this person. A little over half. And those in the high hurry, about 10% stopped to do anything. Right? What we learned is the task variable. What about the people who were talking about the Good Samaritan? It had virtually no effect. They had virtually no effect. And here's some conclusions that they made. That ironically, a person in a hurry is less likely to help people, even if you're going to speak on the parable of the Good Samaritan. Some people actually literally stepped over the victim on their way. The results seem to show that thinking about norms does not imply one will actually act on them. And maybe people's cognition is narrowed by the hurriedness that they feel, that they fail to see other people and the emergencies around them. Another conclusion was that ethics become a luxury as the speed of our lives increases. And does our theology become a luxury as the speed of our lives increase? And man, we are busy, aren't we? I mean, we are busy doing what we need to do, and all these things are good things. I mean, you have a family, you have a job. I mean, just to juggle all of that stuff. And we are so busy getting, you know, our kids to things and putting food on the table and doing the whole thing and just trying to keep the machine running. And yet Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Let's talk about someone else who was just doing their own thing and faced with a decision to stop and help. This guy from Libya. He's on a pilgrimage to observe a religious holiday. He probably got swept up in a crowd and commotion that was sort of gathering. He kind of just wanted to see what it was about. So he gets to the front of the crowd and he sees a guy walking down the street. And his man is passing by, carrying a cross. And the man is beaten, bloody, and almost dead. And right in front of him, the man stumbles, falls, and is unable to stand back up. And everyone present at that very moment is faced with a choice. That man is Simon of Cyrene. He's mentioned three times in the scriptures. Matthew says they found man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry the cross. Mark says they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country to carry his cross. And Luke says that as they led him in the way, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid the cross on him to carry it behind Jesus. You see, Simon was likely there for the Passover. Matthew and Mark say Simon was compelled, and Luke says that he was seized. And they laid the cross on him. And terms like seized and compelled don't seem very optional, do they? But I actually, had, I believe he had a choice. I, I think he probably, with the crowd, could have refused, could have pulled away, secreted himself back into the crowd. Huh, not me, <laughs> right? But how heavy would the burden have been to have done nothing, knowing what we know now? But he did... And then it's just a story that we brush over. So let's back up from that story a little bit. Luke chapter 9. Jesus um, sends the apostles out, right? So that chapter, Jesus sends the apostles out. Uh, They did all these miracles. They come back. They feed the 5,000. This is where the whole who do you say I am thing is, right? And that win, 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 win. And then what happens? Jesus predicts his death. That's not very celebratory, is it? Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day raised to life. And then he said to him, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me will save it. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Now, I want you to think of how many times you've read this and think, well, all of these struggles, all of these burdens, all of these toils in my life are just my cross to bear. If you were not here, Mindy introduced an exercise where we were to write our burdens down on these stones. And everybody was given a stone and who wanted to participate and put some stuff, and then those stones were put on the stage here. And that was an outward expression of an inward desire to lay these things down in commandment of that scripture to bring your burdens to Jesus. And I'll tell you, Mindy took all of those homes and I will, I'll verify that she prayed for every single one of them. Now, someone wrote Kevin on one of those rocks. And I'm not going to ask you to identify yourself, but that was not nice, I'm just going to say, right? But having the unique opportunity to see those anonymous scribbles I was struck by the depth of those burdens. And I say struck, not surprised. Not surprised at all. I mean, just walking in to our community, you would never know the burdens that people in our midst are carrying. And these were the safe ones to write, because I'm pretty sure all of us have something that we would never put down in ink publicly. But everyone looks like they have it together. And so, out of social contract, we isolate, we find cover. And that contract forces us to suffer in silence. And the scheme of our our theology tells us, well, this is just my burden. I must not have it figured out yet. I shouldn't have walked down that street. This just must be my cross to bear. I have news for you. Just because that feels true doesn't mean it is. I would submit that the cross that Jesus carried was not his cross. Whose was it? It was yours and mine. And the cross that Simon carried was not his cross. And when Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me, the cross you are to carry every day is not your cross. And so when Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, Jesus says, bring your burdens to him. Where does Jesus live? Is he in the temple? No, the temple was destroyed. If I go down the hall to the children's ministry, what are the kids going to tell me? Where does Jesus live? In me. Because they know, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you. You are the body. The body of Christ is where burdens go. We take communion, and the, bo- the bread represents the body of Christ, right? And what happens symbolically before we take communion? It's broken. It's broken. The body of Christ is designed to be broken. Not by the burdens and toils that we ourselves have to hide, but to shoulder and bear the burdens of others for their rest. And if we are the hands and feet of Jesus, when we read footprints in the sand, those single footprints should look like your feet. I've got size 13 skis. (laughs) Do you know why every year we keep doing these big holiday meals and gatherings, the week's worth of cleaning and prepping and shopping and planning, even 13 hours of prep and cooking, hours of dishes and cleanup afterwards? It's so for even just 20 minutes, we can all sit down together, share a meal, and share peace over a table with just a little bit of rest. And what we learn from the Jewish tradition is that the Sabbath is not about what you do on Sunday, it's about all the things that you have to get done to get everyone to the place of rest. The Sabbath law was not about you, it was making sure that not just you, but your son, your daughter, Your employees, your co-workers, your animals, and any foreigner among you can find rest in their souls. It's everyone working twice as hard to ensure that everyone has the opportunity for rest. You see, the Sabbath is not just about what you do on Sunday. It's about what you do on the other six days. God has a wonderful plan for your life as a life that is designed to embrace the burdens and sufferings of others. St. Paul the Apostle in his letter to the Galatians urges us to carry each other's burdens and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. And if we believe that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law, then bearing another's burden for the sake of their Sabbath is the way that we fulfill the law of Christ. This is hard. It's messy. I mean, Simon touched the broken body of Christ. He felt the heat from his sweat. He felt the weight of that cross, every splinter and crack of the wood. He probably felt Jesus' blood drip over his cheek and shoulders. Bearing the suffering of others is empirical. It is tactile. But the sharing of suffering of others, there can be no skeptics. You see, it's kindness that leads people to repentance, not the promise of future kindness, stitched on a pillow, or hung on a wall. St. Augustine, in his 20th sermon on the New Testament, said, So that then they, who with unfearing neck, have submitted to the yoke of the Lord, they endure such hardships and dangers, that they seem not to be called from labor to rest, but from rest to labor. The goal is not to escape toil or suffering for your rest, but to be freed to enter into the burden and share the suffering of another for their rest. And in this, we follow Jesus' example on the cross. This is why so often the work of the Lord distracts us as we step over those closest to us who are in need. Now, if you are hearing harshness and you are hearing condemnation or you are hearing works, please understand that is not the goal. This is a reframing. I want to draw your attention to something else that we often miss. And he invites and compels us to do this. In that verse, he says, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. So you're telling me I have to lay my burden to pick up somebody else's? I got to get rid of my stuff to carry somebody else's stuff? Yes, this is the way for my friend back there. Jesus' terminology of the yokes is really, really interesting here, but this is kind of where it gets cool. See, a yoke is a device that evenly distributes a load and places the burden on the area that's structurally able to carry it. Right? When I was a kid, I went camping and I had these big five-gallon buckets of water and it pulled my shoulders out. I got injured from it. But to carry water, we put a yoke across the back of our shoulders and we hang those buckets. And you are able to carry it for miles and miles and miles, right? It's designed to do that. It puts it where it should be. And a yoke is used for livestock. And there's single and double yokes. And for oxes and horses and donkeys, um, with a yoke, there is efficiency. A horse with a yoke can pull twice what it can without it. But two horses together on a yoke can pull more than the sum of what they both can pull. And, and anybody who's ever done this, I haven't, but anybody who's ever done this tells you that, they're, that livestock can be very awkward at first. It's cumbersome. They need to get coordinated. They need to get used to it. But then once they start getting coordinated, man, they can pull more than twice what they normally are. They can work far longer and they can work every day. See, we can do more when we're connected with another person. With a yoke, there's connection. We are bound together, which means they are shouldering my toil, my suffering, as I shoulder theirs. And even though it's hard, it's actually so easy. Sometimes all it takes is to make a connection, right? Just to come by and say an ear or a kind word. But sometimes it takes just noticing and saying, I got you. That wasn't hers. She says, I got you all the time to me. So Sometimes it says, you're not alone. Sometimes it says, oh, I can do that. I can help you with that. Sometimes that's all it takes. And what we learn from this, we didn't plan this. Mindy and I really didn't coordinate or anything, but what we learned in this, and when we when we look at these rocks, we learn and we see that man, there are burdens in our midst. You don't have to look far. Your neighbors who's ever in front of you. And as a community, we have a choice to continue in isolation in the social contract or as a community, we can reach out, touch, and shoulder those for each other, and in that we find the freedom that we need. And so, Dave, we, we kind of changed the, the um, service just a little bit, right? Um, we're going to do communion afterwards. And, and with, the, with the thing in mind that as we break the bread, we are choosing to enter into the suffering of others. And in that, the burden is light. In that, the burden is light when we do it together. So Minnie's going to come, um, the band's going to come up here, and then uh, we're going to start in communion. And then as we take communion, I'm going to have some of these rocks set out here. Uh, nobody put their name on them, so it should be pretty anonymous. Um, but what I want you to do is if you feel compelled, I want you to just pick a rock. I want you to take that, and I want you to pray for that this week. Whatever burden that is, and these aren't just things on a... On a, this, This is someone's real burden, and see if we can find those opportunities to connect, see if we can find the people who are right in front of us that we can share with. Amen? Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.